This is Shale Khan, head of GTM Research, and you're listening to The Interchange, weekly conversations about the energy transition from GTM. I'm here without Stephen Lacey for just one more week as he continues to bask in the glow of his new marriage. But never fear, he'll be back with me next week and forevermore. Uh, But in the meantime, we have a great show for you. It's a follow-on to an episode that we recorded back in June on blockchain and energy. Uh, with Scott Clavenna, our CEO at GTM, and an amateur, quickly turning semi-professional blockchain enthusiast. That episode where we sort of walked through the the introduction to how blockchain could be used in energy and how people are thinking about it, that remains one of the most popular episodes that we've done. And we've received a ton of really great feedback from all of you um, on what else we should be thinking about in blockchain and energy, and also a lot of questions that are questions, many of which I've shared as I've started to think about this issue. So this week, we're going deeper. We're going to look at two companies, uh, both of whom are exclusively blockchain and energy companies and who are commercializing very different blockchain energy businesses, but both of whom have raised a lot of money to get off the ground very recently. So we'll compare their ideas and their strategies, and then we'll talk about the broader evolution of blockchain and electricity. But before we do that, I can't help myself. I need to go on a short rant. Uh, I'm sure many of you saw in the news this week, this turned into a pretty big story. It it initially came from the Washington Post did an expose earlier this week on this company, Whitefish Energy. Whitefish Energy uh, won the largest contract that was awarded by PREPA, the grid operator in Puerto Rico, to repair large portions of the Puerto Rico grid. This was reportedly up to a $300 million contract that was awarded to this company, Whitefish Energy. And the information that has come out about Whitefish Energy has been, I think, disturbing to say the least. So let me just tell you what we know from all the reporting that's been done. Whitefish Energy currently claims to have about 280 workers in Puerto Rico, most of whom are subcontractors. But the company itself is only two years old. And prior to Hurricane Maria, it only had two full-time employees. We've done a little bit of digging around to try to find out more about Whitefish Energy. Their YouTube channel just started posting videos a week ago. Their website is incredibly sparse. It has very little information on it. And it's only been working intermittently this week, depending on when we go. The, white, the website is just down sometimes. There have been uh, questions about whether this was awarded on the basis of cronyism. Um, There are basically two lines to that theory. The first is that the company itself is from Whitefish, Montana, which is the hometown of Secretary of the Interior, Ryan Zinke. And uh, the CEO of Whitefish Energy is friends with Zinke. They've both admitted that, though they say that everybody in that town knows each other. Also, the Daily Beast did a small investigation where they found out that the private equity firm that is backing Whitefish Energy was founded by and is run by a relatively prominent Trump donor. So there's questions about cronyism, but let's set those aside for a moment. Here's why this is a big story. The scale of the disaster in Puerto Rico is far larger than anything that Whitefish has ever handled. As far as we know, um, the company has won two federal contracts before from the Department of Energy. The first was a $172,000 contract to replace a metal pole structure um, in three miles 
in Arizona. And then shortly after Maria, Whitefish also landed uh, what is its largest federal contract, a $1.3 million deal to repair and replace up parts of a different transmission line in Arizona. So they had won a grand total of federal contracts of about $1.5 million. This is up to a $300 million contract. And we don't know all the contract details, but what we do know uh, is what the, the hourly rates are for the workers under this contract. For example, the hourly rate for a site supervisor was set at $330 an hour, at $228 for a journeyman lineman, um, for $462 an hour for subcontractors uh, who are supervisors. These are high numbers. Just to give you some context, the Bureau of Labor Statistics says that the average hourly rate for a, a lineman, not a journeyman lineman, but a lineman operating on the grid in the U.S. is about $30 an hour. So that is one-tenth the hourly rate under this contract. Admittedly, it will be higher for a journeyman lineman, and it will be higher because it's in Puerto Rico and it's disaster recovery, but those are big numbers. Moreover, PREPA apparently chose Whitefish for this deal instead of enacting what's called a mutual aid agreement, which would have allowed mainland utilities to help out in the disaster recovery. This is a pretty standard thing to do when there's a disaster, even when there's a hurricane specifically. Um, And as a side note, mainland utilities have been doing actually really well in response to hurricanes just this season. For in Florida, for example, though 60% of Florida lost power briefly in the hurricane that hit there, virtually all of them got it back within a week. Meanwhile, in Puerto Rico, we're 35 days after the hurricane hit, and only one-fourth of the island has power today. On October 1st, Florida Power and Light, the utility that managed this really great recovery in the state of Florida, had teams assembled to assess damage in Puerto Rico. It posted notices in Spanish and in English on its Facebook page saying that it was ready to help Puerto Rico. And the governor of Florida, Rick Scott, mentioned the offer in a news release. Florida Power and Light reported to the Washington Post that it never received a reply from PREPA. And PREPA apparently also has never responded to offers of assistance from mutual aid partners like uh, the American Public Power Association, which is the organization that represents all the small uh, municipal and and rural uh, electric cooperatives in the country, which is, again, a great way to manage the recovery on a grid that is similar to what many of them are facing. PREPA's executive director has has basically made uh, two points about why Whitefish was selected here. The first was that they were the first to arrive. They basically were the first ones to show up. Um, that's not really a legitimate reason in my mind. You know, there was a need. Clearly, others were going to show up. You don't award it to the first person who comes to your door. The second thing that he said is that uh, Whitefish Energy, being based in Montana, has experience with mountainous, rural, and rugged areas. Um First of all, their experience in general seems to be somewhat limited. But beyond that, I think that if you went to the American Public Power Association, which again has a lot of rural electric cooperatives throughout the country, I bet you could find others who have that kind of experience. And the third point that that PREPA's executive director has made is that uh, Whitefish Energy was willing to work under different financial terms. They were not as scared of the fact that PREPA is bankrupt. Um, and can't really afford to pay its bills. So they didn't need a lot of payment up front. They only took $3.7 million up front out of the $300 million contract. So they were willing to work with PREPA 
that one I believe a little bit more, but uh, FEMA is footing the bill for this recovery in Puerto Rico right now. One would assume that other companies could have dealt with how to get paid by FEMA. And in fact, there are other companies that have been awarded contracts. Floor, for example, which is a huge construction firm, was also awarded a pretty big contract and has somehow managed to get past PREPA's bankruptcy. I'm personally not all that interested in the conspiracy theories here. I don't know whether there was any cronyism involved. I do know there's there are a couple of investigations coming where we should find that out. The House Committee on Natural Resources is looking into the deal. Nancy Pelosi just today joined calls for an investigation of Whitefish Energy and whether Secretary Zinke was involved. So we'll find out at some point whether there was any cronyism. But setting that aside, we, I think we just need to be monitoring this really closely. The outage in Puerto Rico is by far the biggest humanitarian disaster in the United States right now. And there's really no excuse for bad execution, let alone cronyism. So in the meantime, you know, there are lots of ways for all of us to help support the grid rebuilding. You can donate. There's work being done by the Solar Energy Industries Association. There's an organization empowered by light, which is partnered up with Sunrun and doing installations there. Um, Support this and pay attention because it really matters right now. And it, it's just somewhat infuriating that you would see something like this happen when it's so important to so many Americans. Whew. Okay, rant over. Let's talk about blockchain. Um, so what we want to do is talk about sort of the emerging use cases and business models that are surrounding blockchain and energy. And I'm really pleased to have back with me for the second time to talk about this, the head of Green Tech Media and chairman of Power and Renewables at Wood McKenzie. Um, and as I said, an, an amateur bordering on semi-professional blockchain enthusiast, Scott Clavenna. Scott, thanks for being here. Hey, thanks. Yeah, happy to be here. I love blockchain. <laughs> We're well aware, Green Tech Media, of your love of blockchain. Um, and it's really timely for us to be talking about it right now because um, blockchain energy startups in the U.S. are starting to make some some real progress and get big partners and big investors. Just this week, we saw an announcement that LO3 Energy, which is a, a somewhat prominent blockchain energy company, raised a round of venture capital, some of which came from Centrica, which is a, a big European, UK-based utility company. So there's money flowing into this from from major players. Um, what we've decided to do for this episode is to pick two of the other prominent blockchain energy companies who are sort of furthest along in their development process. So we can say the most about what they're doing. And we picked these two because they have very different strategies and business models from each other. So the first one is Power Ledger, which is based in Australia. And the second one is Grid Plus, which is based in the US. So Scott, let's start by just kind of talking through what each of these companies is trying to do with blockchain in the energy sector. Um, why don't we do Power Ledger first? What is their basic idea? All right. Well, yeah, actually, we should just say, like, what's what's the point here? And I think the interesting thing, having these two companies as examples, does illustrate two different ways to think about where and how blockchain comes into the electricity market. So I guess the, the point of blockchain is finding ways where value is exchanged in electricity that currently is you know, it's either inefficient or it's impossible because of regulations or there are, there are intermediaries that add little value but add a lot of cost. So you're just, you're looking through blockchain versus other 
like new technologies, if you're if you have like a venture capitalist hat on, you're always thinking about um, what you know, how do you come into a market and not be a technology looking for a problem to solve, but you see a problem and then you design something to solve it. The interesting thing with blockchain is that it is a technology looking for problems to solve. It's such a fundamental platform kind of technology that it it actually makes sense for the sort of unleash people's creative thinking around, okay, you have this new technology, this new toolkit, and you just start looking around for problems to solve with it. So venture capitalists tend not to like that in general, but I think in this case, there are so many ways in which blockchain changes the 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 way in which value is exchanged, not just in energy, but in, in everything. Um, our value is stored yeah, literally from you know, uh, currency all the way to all the things we're going to talk about, um, that the range of applications gets dizzying. And I think that's where you end up finding a lot of hype. But you also, you know, you see a lot of creativity. And so the the ends of the spectrum in a way, or at least two somewhere along the spectrum are power ledger and grid plus so if you look at power ledger they are definitely looking at utilities and looking to be a partner with utilities to participate in the transformation of utilities to more digital savvy digital platform companies and so how they look at things, they may end up with the same applications as someone like a, a Grid Plus, but they're looking at it as a, a way to work with utilities to help improve their um, operations efficiencies, the way they interact with customers, services they offer, and that kind of thing. So Power Ledger is a little different in that what they're fundamentally focused on, from what I understand. I mean, these are all really early stage companies that are just... Um, getting products or getting, you know, their platforms sort of commercially grade and, and out there in trials. But it, what it appears is, is creating a foundation um, that, or a platform that uh, is relative, that participants can then build applications on top of. And those applications then are, tend to be applications for utilities to, um, you know, either just improve the way they interact with customers or actually support new kinds of services that weren't there before, like peer-to-peer energy trading. That's definitely the the biggest one. Yeah. So let's talk about that one, because like you said, I think the way that I understand Power Ledger is, is they sort of, they want to be able to develop a bunch of different types of applications and use cases. But this first one that they've already tested out, I think in a few places in, in Australia and New Zealand is, is peer-to-peer. So can you just talk about what that is and how blockchain enables it? Yeah, peer to peer, peer to peer is really the 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 key thing. The key thing that's caught everyone's imagination in um, blockchain for energy because I think we're all observing the rise of distributed generation, and we're also observing, you know, kind of the the rise of the prosumer people who want to take more control over their um, of their energy, not just reduce its cost, but actually. Um, either improve like their resiliency to storms or uh, certainly in the case of distributed PV, uh, lower their carbon you know, footprint. And so as that keeps happening, there's a, a greater sense that, you know, culturally, personally, people um, want to also kind of break away from the traditional utility model and 
what peer-to-peer then signals to them, like the, the ability of blockchain to have a digital transfer of value that's quite secure and trustworthy and uh, distributed, it matches in a way the the same trend that's that's bubbling out of the growth of distributed generation. And so peer-to-peer, it also has a value that, that might not be obvious at first, but in in uh, blockchain for energy, the way to really stress test blockchain and to really prove its value is to get as many participants as possible. So even though you could and you can use blockchain for wholesale power trading, there tend to be very few trades. They're bilateral. They're fairly easy. There might be some expensive intermediary, but end of the day, these are big trades. Um, they're at the ISO level, and there's just not as much scale associated with it. So if you really want to think about having a technology improving its scale, then you look to where can you do that? And that's definitely in the, the residential space and doing peer-to-peer. You know, that's, that's kind of stress testing everything about electricity, market participants, market design and structure. And so that's why they want to do that now. And it's basically, um, if you have the ability to generate right now, instead of just using what you use and then exporting the rest onto the grid and having no sense of where it goes, um, you create a small market. Um, so it's a permission blockchain, meaning that you can't just trade with anyone. It's only the folks that are on that particular blockchain with you. Um, and in some cases, like the first case with Power Ledger, it was behind a meter. It was like in a little community, almost like a microgrid. So all the participants were literally behind, I think it was in like a, a retirement village or something like that. So they were behind a single meter and then they had um, uh, the ability to, some of the roofs had solar, some didn't. So they had, they had the ability literally to trade with each other inside that little micro uh, micro network. Uh, Power Ledger's taking it a little bigger and finding more like campus microgrids, things like that, but where you can have the ability to monetize your excess generation um, in a more, in a peer-to-peer way rather than just to the uh, utility. Right, and Power Ledger also talks about one of the other use cases, which is, I guess, probably less about peer-to-peer trading, but another benefit you could have by using blockchain is for a multi-tenant property, you know, one of the reasons why it's been so hard to get, for example, solar on the rooftops of multi-tenant apartment buildings is that, you know, you, you have to somehow allocate shares of the value of the solar generation from a single array that usually has a single meter to a bunch of individual tenants. And so they can allocate that via blockchain. So that's another example of a use case that they're talking about in kind of the early days. Yeah, it's fascinating. And, you know, as if you look at where distributed generation is going, where more and more distributed PV is getting paired with batteries, then you have not just a a distributed point of generation. So a home isn't just when I use it, I use it. When I don't, I export it in in real time. You actually have the ability to to be a dispatchable generator. And then it gives you some more flexibility to actually, you know, relate in real time with um, sort of your local, you know, marginal pricing of energy and be a market participant. And I think the key thing that probably makes people's heads spin a little bit thinking about peer-to-peer as a residential consumer is do you really want to sit at a trading desk all day and try and eke out an extra $5 a month? It it really doesn't make a whole lot of sense compared to wholesale power trading. But I mean, the beauty of 
this also happening where everyone has smartphones, everyone has Wi-Fi, you know, the in intelligent agents or the software platform that you get, depending on what uh, blockchain service you're using, you have the ability really to just set in a bunch of constraints and preferences and just let the, uh, the network behave according to your preferences, which is also a, one of the real nice things about blockchain technology based on Ethereum, which has this smart, this programmable smart contract layer on top of it. So you can kind of program you, your identity, your, um, your house, whatever, as having a set of preferences for price, for comfort level, for, um, you know, settings for when you're there, when you're not there, all that. And, you know, you just try and maximize the amount of money you can uh, save or the amount of income you can generate based on, uh, you know, your, your home. Yeah. So like a use case, or I guess in a specific example that I like to think about in the peer to peer world is sort of, if I, if I imagine that, um, I have an electric vehicle, I'm a homeowner with an EV and you're a homeowner who has rooftop solar and a battery. And there's some point at which I need to charge my vehicle. Um, but maybe it's peak hours, right? Or, you know, maybe it's, it's not the normal time that I would want to charge and it's going to be pretty expensive for me to charge right now. But you have excess solar generation that either you're generating right now or that you stored in a battery. So you have a full battery at your house. So maybe I want to buy electricity from you at this moment rather than buying it from the grid because it's going to be, you know, you'll offer it to me for less than you would be able to sell it to the grid for. Um, so I save money, but you make more money. That's like a, a transaction you might see on this network. Yeah, exactly. And that would just be programmed into my preferences. I wouldn't even know you and we wouldn't have to have this conversation. It would just happen. Um, yeah, my I would be available on the market and uh, I would come home and find out I had made a few dollars that day. Um, so it's it's actually a really elegant platform when that when all the technology uh, gets worked out, the potential of it's it's really vast. So it's obviously very attractive to utilities because they don't want to miss out. And that's kind of where Power Ledger is playing um, to allow them to have that capability and communicate and you know offer that kind of stuff to their customers. And then, you know, Grid Plus and others are on the other side saying, forget the utility. You know, at some point we can um, just use the wires and do this ourselves. Right. So that's a good transition. So just to recap, sort of, so Power Ledger wants to be the friend of the utility. And the idea with Power Ledger is to be able to set up these little bespoke blockchains that are permissioned that would serve any number of purposes eventually. But initially, a lot of them, one imagines, are allowing for peer to peer transactions within these little distributed grids. So now let's talk about Grid Plus and what they're trying to do and, and how it's different. Yeah, Grid, Grid Plus is newer, so they're not out yet. Power Ledger has the benefit of having worked with utilities, having pilots, having um, some commercial-ready products now. So they're they're out ahead. They did just uh, raise a bunch of money in a token sale, so they're well-funded and moving right along in Australia. Grid Plus is a little newer. We probably won't see them actually in the market, like actually have product in the market in Texas until the first or second quarter of next year. But they've got the concept pretty well designed and they, they also did a token sale. So they've got some money um, or they're, they're still through going through the process of that. Um, so there's a recognition that they've got a good platform and a good, good enough team. Well, maybe actually saying an, an, a successful token sale is a validation of a company, but that's probably uh saying too much these days, but they have money thanks to the token sale. Um, 
And they're... The difference that they have is a very specific, they have a very specific plan and a very specific business model. They're not really building a, a whole platform and looking for utilities to partner with them to develop applications on top of it. They basically have the application. It's to be a competitive retail provider in Texas and provide customers with the ability to hopefully have much lower costs than traditional, either the incumbent retail utilities or other competitive retailers who um, still have relatively high prices, um, even if they come in a little under the, uh, the incumbent, it's still relatively high. And they're, the whole premise of a blockchain-based competitive retailer is you are, you're not fully disintermediating um, the utility, but you are f- coming up with a way to have sort of real-time uh, price exposure, real-time uh, settlement of that. And they feel like they just don't need to mark up the wholesale power price as much as a traditional competitive retailer would. And they have a f- number of reasons why blockchain is one of the reasons, or at least it's the, sort of the foundation for the reasons. But they also have some other things that aren't necessarily associated with blockchain. I mean, having prepaid to get rid of counterparty risk around um, debt, prepaid does exist outside of blockchain. So that's one thing that they have that I wouldn't say has to be a, um, unique to blockchain, but they do have at least a, a platform in place that there isn't necessarily a, a utility sitting between you and the wholesale market. It's more of a, an electronic platform that you have direct access to. Right. And so the, so the way that the retail markets and competitive retail markets like Texas sort of work today is you know, there, there's a wholesale electricity price, but then there's this retailer that sits in between that wholesale market and you, the customer. And that retailer is buying power on the wholesale market, but then doing a whole bunch of things to end up getting you, the customer, a relatively simple value proposition. So they're, they're probably charging you either, you know, a fixed rate for electricity or a relatively simple rate for electricity. So your prices don't go way up and down in concert with wholesale prices. They also do all this metering and billing work. As you said, you know, they have to take on the risk of the fact that you're not, you might not pay. Um, so debtor risk. And so Grid Plus's argument is basically all those things are one, unnecessary and two, expensive. And so they estimated that, you know, the average markup on wholesale prices for a retailer in Texas is like 50%. And so what instead Grid Plus wants to do is say, we're going to expose you to those wholesale markets. You will be subject to those price fluctuations, but we're only going to mark up power 20%. So you're, you're pocketing that 30% difference. I mean, you know, you and I have talked a lot about the, the kind of risks that come with exposing retail customers to wholesale markets. Do you want to talk a little bit about that and why that, that makes both of us ever so slightly nervous? Well, all right. I've got two reasons. Actually, the exposure I'm getting more comfortable with um, because I do think the exposure to the wholesale price fluctuations say in Texas, in ERCOT, there's still basically a way to manage that by programming your settings in this platform. So you can you can set the amount that you want to be exposed to it through the the software. So it takes some customer education. It definitely is like a prosumer. Someone needs to kind of sit down and think about 
you know, hopefully there's ways for them to look at scenarios for what they're choosing, um, the upper and lower bounds and, you know, how they're setting their, um, uh, you know, their, their price floors and ceilings and that and the like. But in general, I, I, I'm kind of comfortable with that. I'm still not totally comfortable with competitive retail in general as a, as a thing that exists in the United States. Um, I tend to hate competitive retail. So even, so it's hard for me to say, oh, blockchain solves the things I hate about it. Um, because competitive retail to me is just the world's worst customer acquisition activities. You know, I literally, while you were ranting um, about Puerto Rico, I got a robocall asking me to switch from Eversource to a competitive <laughs> retailer, literally, while really? I was sitting That's there. That's great. Um, and I get them a couple times a day. And so it's it's super obnoxious. And most of the time, what happens with those calls, if people go for them, is that you get a low, like six months, you get 15% less than Eversource. And then month seven, it's often 25%, 30%, 40% over. You don't even know what's going to happen. And so there's just tons of animosity um, among regulators, consumer advocates, um, and customers around competitive retail because it tends to just draw the shadiest characters into the business and they tend to prey on low income, elderly. It's just classic, you know, lousy business model. And so part of what needs to be fixed in competitive retail isn't just a better software infrastructure. It literally is better business practices. And so I would still, I would still bucket everything that grid plus is doing and they are challenged by the, the lousy business practices of competitive retail. And they have to make sure they don't fall into those traps of egregious fees for, you know, for disconnect and reconnect and, um, um, all, all the, uh, uh, shady business practices around customer acquisition. But so say they, they do, then you, you do have, if they're able to get past that. And there is, there is something about this that doesn't necessarily lend itself to that because it is a prosumer. You are looking for customers that are very engaged with energy and so aren't going to go for, aren't necessarily going to be as inclined to go for that. And are certainly going to be watching the performance of it, uh, more closely. So, uh, with that, though, I think at first when they start, it's actually fairly straightforward. I think you do, uh, you know, phase one is pretty simple and you're not so much exposed to or you can choose not to be exposed kind of in, indefinitely. And then they're going to turn on more, fe- more features as um, uh, it goes from alpha to beta to more commercial um, launch. And even when you do, I think it's all around can you optimize your energy use around um, the prediction the prediction engine that's going to be built into this? So some of the value of this is going to come down, again, not to actually the blockchain offering this value, but um, other factors around Grid Plus being able to do uh, good price prediction so you can you know adjust your settings or have certain things built in so when prices hit certain levels, then that's when you know you run your appliances or you know, turn your AC on. Right. Yeah. I mean, in theory, it's sort of, um, it's a way to test out like time of use prices in a way that we 
we've barely seen anywhere else. You know, when we have time of use prices for the most part for retail customers in the US, you know, you'll have peak prices and off peak, but those are not nearly as volatile as wholesale prices are, especially in places like Texas. So, you know, this is more exposure to that, which will be an interesting test for the the prosumer types and the really engaged types who actually might want to mess around with their load and, you know, install controllable devices in their home to to turn on and off the demand for power. So I think we, I want to come back in a minute to talking and comparing and contrasting these business strategies between the two of them. But before we do that, let's let's uh, go off on a side road for a minute. You've mentioned a couple of times token sales. So I just want to talk about that for a minute. So one of the reasons that we picked Grid Plus and Power Ledger is that both of them um, either recently held or in the case of Grid, Grid Plus are, are just about to hold what's called an initial coin offering. Also, um, a token sale. And they raised just what to me seems like an amazing amount of money. Grid Plus uh, has announced that they have, they've raised over $40 million just in pre-sales. Power Ledger raised, I think, $34 million Australian, which is about 26 US. Um, so they're just raising a lot of money in these initial coin offerings. And for those of us who are not like deeply living within the the world of blockchain. Can you just explain what an initial coin offering is and then why each of these companies did it? Yeah, sure. All right. So first, we should probably, if we're going to get into detailed semantics, we should probably say what they've, what these two companies did because they're basing it on Ethereum and they're actually not selling a currency. They are, uh, or they're not operating or generating a, a currency that people will use as just a simple sort of store of value. They are creating utility tokens. So, and utility here meaning the uh, traditional sense of the word, not electric utility, meaning that this token has some utility within the system that now you are a market participant in. And so, in general, ICO tends to be the the sort of mass media term. But these are these two companies had token generating events or token sales in. in Typically, when you're talking about a, uh, a company that is based on Ethereum, it's more around the token than it is around a coin. So in these particular token sales, what they're, what generally you're buying is it is a utility token. So you're not buying a stake in the company. It's not a security. So it's not regulated by the SEC, though a number of these ICOs and token sales start to push into a gray area just based on how the SEC defines what is a security or not. But in these cases, um, in these two specific cases, they, you weren't buying a stake in the company. So you're not hoping that your tokens increase in value because the company is valued at, you know, that its value goes up. You're actually buying tokens that you can use within that system. And so in, in each case, um, they're a little different. But when you have a token, there's something that you can use it for within the system. Um, in Grid Plus, for example, if you buy grids, you get basically you can exchange that token within the Grid Plus network for 500 kilowatt hours of wholesale power at cost. So by participating in the token sale now, you're basically it's almost like getting a coupon. Like you know, for the first hundred customers, you get 500 kilowatt hours of uh, power at at cost, um, and then later. If you run out of those tokens, you have to sort of refill your agent with bolts um, 
a separate unit that they have that's just translates to dollars. But but basically, Wait, yeah, that's the thing. Hold on, it's it's uh, you know Let, that's how these work. You're buying a token. You're buying some unit um, of utility that you can use within their network. Right. Okay. And so one thing that has confused the hell out of me in all these these coin offerings, and this is true of both Grid Plus and Power Ledger, is that they have two different. They have two token systems. So in the case of Grid Plus, they have Bolt, which is one, and Grid which is the other. In the case of Power Ledger, one of them is Power, P-O-W-R, and the other one is Sparks, S-P-A-R-K-Z. So in either case, basically, as I understand it, one of those is basically just sort of a, it's a translation. It's a translation from fiat currency, say dollars, into some token that you can trade within this platform. But, you know, a bolt is is equal to $1. It's pegged to a dollar. So it's just a dollar's worth of tokens. But then once you have a bolt, what you really want to do with it is you want to transfer that into grids at whatever the going price is for grids. And a grid is the thing that actually allows you to do something with it. And as you mentioned, in the case of a grid, it is purchase 500 kilowatt hours of electricity at the wholesale cost. I don't think you necessarily have to translate into grids. You just translate into electricity consumption. I mean, it's how you pay for electricity. Um, when you're a Grid Plus customer. So why would you, what is the benefit the of- The Grid one yeah. is more, I, I believe the Grid token, and we might be entering in areas where I'm, I'm at the edge of my knowledge, but I, my sense of the Grid token is when, is when you're wanting to buy 500 kilowatt hours um, in this token sale. So it's like this first issuance of these coupons to help fund the company, and they're giving you- um, 500 kilowatt hours of wholesale power at cost. So it's passed through. There's no markup on that. Bolts would include a markup then. So bolts, you're just using, you're trading dollars for um, a token you can use to buy power, but that power would likely um, come with a markup. Right. So from, from Grid Plus's perspective, they get to raise $40 million plus to fund operations. So this could, you know, this is non-dilutive capital, right? They're not raising equity, venture equity. So, you know, they get to retain ownership of their company, but they get $40 million, which is crazy, right? It's like, you know, if we were, if that this was like a series A, we'd be like, holy shit, a $40 million series A. So they raise a ton of money. Um, and the, the folks who bought in on the ICO, they don't get a share of Grid Plus directly, but there's sort of, I guess, in theory, there's sort of two ways that they can earn a return on that money. One would be they can actually uh, turn in that token. So they find somebody who has demand. They said, find somebody who actually uses electricity in Texas territory. And they go to them and say, look, I have a token where I can, I can buy 500 kilowatt hours of this at the wholesale cost. Normally, you would pay the wholesale cost plus 20%. So you get 20% savings. That difference is worth something to you, and I'll sell it to you. And that's going to cost you a little bit more than what I paid for the token in the first place. So that's like one mechanism to get a return on your investment. The other mechanism- yeah, That assumes that there is like a secondary market for grid tokens, which can, a secondary market can be as, I guess, as small as Craigslist. So yeah. Right. There is no like regulated secondary market or exchange for these. So you'd have to just kind of make your own. Right, right. Okay, so but that's, that's that. possible. Or you're just, you know, maybe a, a an actual Texas electricity customer participated in the ICO themselves, yeah. and then they just get a discount on their electricity. Right. The other way is the one that I 
I can wrap my head around a little less, which is, I think, uh, a lot of folks who participate in these ICOs do so under the assumption that the value of these tokens will increase. So they, they think of it almost like they are buying stock where they are planning to hold it and the value should go up. I mean, that's, that's happened. Well, they're wrong. <laughs> but isn't that, I mean, are people <laughs> no, thinking that? In this case, they're wrong. Here? It's possible. Yeah, for sure. I think the one of the, uh, it would be interesting to see what fraction of the 40 million actually thinks that they have a buy and hold strategy on grid tokens. Um, because I can't imagine a scenario where that makes sense. If it's just a coupon for wholesale power at cost, I don't see how that um, gets you anywhere in terms of a buy and hold strategy. I really think it's like you're a beta user, so you get a coupon. You know, you're taking the risk that Grid Plus will fold um, and you'll never be able to redeem it. So for that risk you're taking at this early stage is that when they do start operating, you get your 500 kilowatt hour, your first 500 kilowatt hour chunks of power at wholesale. And then later you'll need to pay the markup when you um, burn through all of those. I guess the other thing to talk about, and then we should talk about the Power Ledger ICO and how it's different. But the other thing that I was trying to figure out is, so if you're, if you're Grid Plus, you raised $40 million to fund operations. So now you have like a reasonably big balance sheet. But You've also, in exchange for that, you've offered to sell a whole lot of wholesale electricity at cost. So, you know, you run this risk of like, you can't, you know, your return is baked into that 20% markup that you're planning to to offer. But for, you know, as much as people bought grids, you don't get to do that. I mean, is there any risk that you run out of cash before you actually get to start making money on what you're doing just because everybody bought grids? Yeah, no, that's interesting. I mean, it's definitely on them to sign up as many customers as possible because I think there is like a, a fee you pay to just become a customer. So there's like a membership fee, uh, if I understand the business right. So they just need the, the key thing that they'll probably spend some of that 40 million on is uh, customer acquisition because they just need a lot of customers now because they want you to burn through your grid tokens and then start. Um, put you know loading your uh, systems up with bolts using real money. I mean, it's super interesting. Like you could have imagined just stepping outside the blockchain world for a minute. This this strategy as a way to raise money. You know, you don't need blockchain inherently to do it. I'm just imagining if like Solar City in its early days had said, you know, made this big announcement online and said, all right, um, we're going to offer up to ten thousand residential solar systems at cost. And all you got to do is sign up for our initial solar offering, our ISO. And, you know, and people do that. And then SolarCity gets a ton of money that's non-dilutive. And then they have to, you know, sell a bunch of solar systems at cost. Is that really any different here? It doesn't feel that different. No, I think the, yeah, yeah, I'm trying to think if the token has value beyond that. I mean, I think part of it is that you want to become a long-term market participant, where with Solar City, if they just gave away X number of solar systems or sold X number of solar systems at cost, they don't have much of a way to continue to make money from you over time. That's a good point. Or this is also a customer this, acquisition strategy. Yeah. This, I still feel like the um, the analogy of selling, of like building a casino by selling a ton of chips to people first. So you get... So you, you raise money through chip sales 
and then they all come in and spend their chips. And the basic logic of a casino is that the casino always wins. And so you know you'll get all those chips back and then people will start spending their own money there. Yeah, that makes sense. All right, so let's switch over to Power Ledger for a second because they also held an ICO. Theirs is actually done, I believe. And like I said, they raised $34 million in Australian dollars um, in their ICO. But theirs is a little bit different where the, where the grid ICO, when, you know, if you buy a token, um, through grid plus, you know exactly what you're getting. You get the right to buy those 500 kilowatt hours at the wholesale price. To me, the, the power ledger tokens seem, um, a little bit less straightforward. How do you understand those tokens to have value? Yeah, it is less to me too. It's almost like, like those tokens allow you access to the platform. Um, but you don't know exactly how they're going to be exchanged in the future. It's, it is less clear. Um, I think what seems to be good about Power Ledger is how well they've developed the platform and that how you have a sense of confidence that through all the relationships with utilities that the platform is getting stress tested by the right people. Um, but I, I actually haven't spent enough time like studying that token to see um, how you exchange it, what are the ways that you exchange it for value there other than the uh, exchange it for power? Right. Well, you, it definitely, you can, you can exchange it for power, but the interesting thing will be because of power ledger's model, where they're going to go around to a bunch of different places and create these, I think bespoke blockchains for specific uses, you know, you, you, the holder of the power token can kind of look out across all these different, uh, applications and sort of decide where to redeem your tokens, where to purchase electricity. So you've, you, you know, if it works, theoretically have more flexibility with what you can do, but it's also less straightforward than just, you know, this is worth X kilowatt hours. The other thing that they talk about that I thought was sort of interesting that Power Ledger talks about is they say the token holders can also participate in what they call an asset germination event. Um, and as I understand it, that, that means that, um, they might offer token holders the opportunity to become part owners of a generator of a renewable energy generation yeah. facility. And then you, yep. would, so you would use, you would redeem your tokens for an ownership stake in a solar project and then, you know, act as you, then you'd be an equity owner basically of the solar project and could, you know, make money off of the sale of electricity. So let's just spend one minute contrasting the business strategies of these two companies. And then I want to ask you about broader developments within the world of blockchain for energy. Um, so obviously these are, these are two very different models. Grid pluses seems to me to be uh, more targeted. And, and at least from the reading that I did, I, I had a much clearer sense of exactly what that business is going to look like. On the other hand, you know, Power Ledger seems to be going after a broader array of different potential applications. They obviously, like you said, they want to sort of befriend the utility as opposed to disintermediating it. Um, how do you think about these relative to each other from a strategic standpoint? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think the interesting thing about energy blockchain is that it really is a, it's a fundamentally, it's a platform technology. So it makes total sense to develop it for this marketplace as a, you know, as a platform, really leverage that and say, you don't quite know the applications, which one is the killer application. So let's open it up to developers and participants to really, um, develop that with us and to utilities to, you know, help decide that. So I like that. The one thing that I found in the Power Ledger white paper that wasn't 
as attractive to me, just having spent a lot of time in a uh, uh, previous career looking, uh, working with venture capitalists and looking at deals is there's a case where when someone is too ambitious, when their, their product roadmap has, you know, over a dozen things on it, in a way you just think, please, you need to focus. Any one of these things takes a lot of time and attention to get right. And it's always more complicated than you think. And so a roadmap of that complexity and, and just that size always kind of bothers me. Um, but I think in terms of how they're executing, starting with peer-to-peer is the right way to go. Because I do think, and Grid Plus, the, the commonality there is that they're starting with peer-to-peer. Even though it's one of the hardest things to pull off, it is the way really to scale a blockchain platform and really understand its um, limitations and start to really change the dynamic um, in a market instead of just address sort of back office things that, you know, it's invisible to everybody. Right. Okay. So, you know, it's worth noting that PowerLedger and Grid Plus, they're not the only two blockchain for energy companies out there. There seem to be more all the time. And there are whole use cases and applications that we haven't even touched on at all today and hopefully will at some point in the future. But let's just step back for a minute what are sort of the other big developments in the blockchain energy world right now? I know we should we should talk about um, some of the the non company specific activities that are going on that are trying to get utilities involved and figure out how to basically scale blockchain within electricity faster than it would happen on its own. So what's sort of happening from a broad perspective? Yeah, there is a lot happening. I mean, it's it's hard to keep up, but. I guess some big ones that are um, important to watch are certainly in the U.S., RMI uh, partnered with Grid Singularity and formed the Energy Web Foundation. And that is uh, somewhat like Power Ledger, but in the sense that it's very focused on utilities, uh, working with utilities, building a relatively bespoke blockchain for utilities. So it's not like Grid Plus uses just a public Ethereum blockchain. Power Ledger has their own um, unique blockchain uh, adaptation of Ethereum. And same with Energy Web Foundation. They take Ethereum and add some um, uh, little protocol work on a layer on top of it uh, to make it what they say more friendly to utilities and the, uh, these applications. A lot of utilities are um, at least par- participating with that. So that's off to a, a good start. And then they just announced a test network so we can start to see um, their blockchain in action. And then in Europe, there's the Enerchain. And that also is working with big energy companies. And they just um, demonstrated their first wholesale energy trade in Europe a few weeks ago and have, a, again, a lot of utility participants. So there, do, there does seem to be, and then there's a bunch of little startups um, around. And so I think those are the two ends of the spectrum that we're just going to keep finding is one group that's really working directly with the incumbents and the utilities helping them take advantage of blockchain. Like IBM, as much as they are a technology company, they're also kind of a consulting company. So they're going in as a partner with utilities with their Hyperledger, which again is a... Uh, it's an open source blockchain that is um, designed or they're adapting you know, features of it for utilities and um, going to actually run networks for utilities. That's in a way that's how uh, IBM is going to make money is to have this blockchain that um, 
they don't just put out there as something for utilities to use. They actually run run the blockchain networks Wait, for them. Can I ask a question about that? Yep. What does it mean to run a blockchain? Isn't the whole point of blockchain that everything is decentralized? Like, what would I be? It undoing? is. It is, but you do have to run. I mean, especially because these are all permissioned. So you're really setting. You're really managing the um, bringing on market participants. Um, there's all kinds of, you know, it's handing out the, the keys, um, to the network and managing all that. It's actually, there, there's a decent amount to it and just the computing infrastructure associated with it. It's a big, um, in a way, it's a big cloud computing network that needs to be managed just at the physical layer, you know, all the computers that are, um, running it and the connectivity among them. And yeah, you know, it's, uh, and I think when you're talking to big um, enterprises like utilities, they actually are not as inter and not as interested in disintermediation. You know, they actually like the idea of having a partner that they can call if things, you know, things start behaving weirdly. Um, versus the more uh, entrepreneurial or anarchist sides, where they they don't want anything to do with any corporate structures and they're all just going to run it themselves and, and put up with the wonkiness that can come with that. Right. My, my last question for you is um, on our last podcast, you, you coined this phrase to describe the world of blockchain people as this loose federation of weirdos. Do you feel like the, um, the emerging ecosystem of blockchain for energy is similarly a loose federation of weirdos, or is it a little bit more like buttoned up, business-oriented folks who are just trying to get in on this hot new technology fad. Yeah, it feels that way. I mean, I, I don't meet too many weirdos in this space. Um, I've, I see them all out in the uh, Ethereum meetings and meetups and, and things like that, talking about you know new currencies and, and all kinds of new ways to tokenize everything, um, identities and, you know, you can tokenize donuts at this point. So they're all, you know, they're looking at that as a way to create like almost a separate, um, separate layer of society where you don't need to have anything. It's, it's definitely an anarchist vision, um, using blockchain, you know, you don't see that as much here. U utilities in the electricity sector are going to be much more, uh, conservative because it is, I mean, when you look at it, electricity is such a fundamental, um, need, and in a way, you're not willing to like trade that um, away and, you know, the, the reliability of it and the predictability of it. You're not willing to trade that away. Right. Like you would for currency or, you know, the other things that people are using blockchain for. Right. Who needs currency? Um, <laughs> <laughs> I should note for, for the listeners that like in case they didn't pick it up, that's that's your note of like nostalgia about the weirdos. You're you're on the side of the weirdos or at least you want to. <laughs> yes. Um, <laughs> Great. Well, uh, I've taken up all the time that I can justify from you. So um, thank you again for joining. This has been really useful for me. Sure. Thank you. This is great. You've been listening to The Interchange. We'll be back next week uh, and Stephen will be here with me. So you won't have to listen to my voice quite so much anymore. And I'll have a pretty big announcement of my own to make on that episode. So tune in next week and thanks for listening. <laughs>